Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, it's important that we go to the Lord in prayer and asking His guidance, direction on our study. Let's pray. Father, You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. You have given us God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who helps us to understand Your Word, who stores it in our soul and brings it to memory for application. It is by means of God the Holy Spirit that we are able to walk uh, consistently and grow in our spiritual life by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who energizes our spiritual life, and we pray that that under his teaching ministry this morning that we can focus and concentrate upon your word. For as we study your word, we come to understand the scope of your plans and your purposes and how you are working all things together for the ultimate glory of yourself and Father, we pray that as we understand these things, that we will see how this relates to us in our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, that the promises that you have given to us in your word are true and that you never waver. You are always faithful to them, and they are as true today as the day they were written. And, Father, we pray that you will guide this study now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we continue our study of resurrection and the gospel. Resurrection and the gospel. Several weeks ago, we began this as a short series. I think I will be able to finish next Sunday. Short series to address some questions that have arisen lately And they related to really two passages, 1 Corinthians 15, which we studied on Resurrection Sunday and then this following Sunday. And then beginning last week, we began to look at Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10. Let me read those verses. There Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, if you take a look at these verses, 
it would appear at first blush, based on the way we use certain English words, that this verse is talking about how to get to heaven. And so it has been taken by numerous people down through the years, and you've probably heard that yourself. In fact, it's very likely that some of you here uh, were led to the Lord by these verses. They're commonly, popularly used for that purpose. And so when we come to this passage and we read these phrases like, you will be saved at the end of verse 9 and resulting in salvation at the end of verse 10, it just seems normal to us that this verse is talking about how to get to heaven or what we might call how to be justified, uh, gaining eternal life or being born again or being regenerated. If indeed this is talking about how to be justified, then it seems that we have to uh, take this verse to mean that we not only have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that we have to also make a public confession of that, and also we have to believe and be convinced that Jesus rose from the dead as a separate conscious proposition. I'll explain a little more what I mean by that as we go as we go through this. Now, what we, I focused on last time was that there are two key questions that we should answer when we talk about witnessing, when we talk about explaining the gospel to someone who is not saved. The first of these is the question, what should we communicate? And we should clearly communicate that Jesus Christ is God and that he is risen from the dead. If you go through the passages in Acts, various other descriptions in New Testament epistles, you see that this is almost always the case. This is how the gospel is presented. Jesus is presented as God, as the Son of God who is God and who is risen from the dead. We need to make that clear. There's no doubt about that. But that does not necessarily mean, on the other hand, that there is a conscious, analyzed understanding of, of the deity of Christ and resurrection. And I use that word analyzed because there are uh, things that we say when we communicate the gospel to people that they don't, as an unbeliever that's spiritually dead, they don't grasp the full significance of it. But they, for example, with a four-year-old or five-year-old, they can't grasp the significance of resurrection from the dead or even the deity of Christ. In fact, a lot of older folks have trouble Uh, fully comprehending the doctrine of the Trinity in an analyzed way. And so we would say that's an unanalyzed acceptance of, of the fact because as Jesus is presented as the living, resurrected Son of God, that's what they, they believe in. But it's not taken out and analyzed quite like that statement is that Jesus died for you. He paid the price for your sins and that by trusting in what he did at the cross, you have eternal life. And so the second question really focuses on the, this, this issue of what must be believed. What is the focal point of our belief? And the focal point, that which must have a clear understanding, that we must have a clear understanding of, is that Jesus died as our substitute. He paid the price for our sins on the cross. So when we look at this, there's these questions, should we... Focus on the substitutionary death of Christ? Yes, that's the focal point. Resurrection? 
in an unanalyzed way, but we present Jesus as raised, but we don't really comprehend all that that means when we're, we're trusting him as well as the deity of Christ. Now, there are times that you might have to take one or two of these things out and look at it a little more, especially if we're dealing with someone who's a little older. Some of you received an email from me this last week where I sent you a, um, sent you a little written testimony from a high school girl. Now, I happen to know a lot more about the girl than I put in the email, and I know for a fact that she's not saved. I also know for a fact her, her spiritual background and training, which was obvious to, I was pleased to see a number of people who read that. But she uses this standard Christian biblical verbiage. She talks in her testimony that Jesus died uh, for her sins. Uh, or for, for the sins of the world. She talks about God. She talks about being a child of God and several other things that might indicate that she was saved. But if you spend time talking to her in a witnessing situation, which we should do, it's not just sort of drive-by evangelism where we fire the gospel gun at people and then go on. We need to talk to them and understand and make sure they understand what we mean by what we say and they need to, and we need to understand what they mean by what they say it's it's a conversation and so we have to uh, clarify these things because the battle is over words satan has distorted god's words since the beginning did god not say that you shall not touch the fruit well it's from the very beginning just the vocabulary shifts when Eve says, well, we can't look at it, we can't touch it, uh, not just not eat it. So from the very beginning, there are these little minor distortions, but that's where the battle lies. And in that particular case, several people recognized right off the bat. In fact, I was pleased to see several members of the congregation spotted this immediately. I was surprised with some of the responses I got because they were brief and to the point. You know, you always have, as, a, as a teacher, you always have two kinds of responses on an essay question. Response number one is uh, the shotgun approach, or another metaphor, throwing everything against the wall and seeing if something, and hoping that something sticks. And then there's the people who really know what's going on, and they zero in on the key word, the key term, and like a sniper's bullet, they just go right to the center of the target. And the key word in that was that she believed in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word restored means that she's a Mormon. The shortest response I got was, she's LDS, Latter-day Saints. And once you understand that, you realize what she means by Jesus isn't our Jesus. What she means by the Bible isn't our Bible. What she means by sin isn't what we mean, because all these words have a changed meaning. So in, in talking to people, as we find out some things about them, you know, this had been a young girl who'd grown up in West Houston Bible Church or another Bible church or Baptist church. You could say, well, she's probably saved, but she just doesn't know how to articulate it or it's not clear. But as soon as you find out she's been indoctrinated in another way of thinking about these words, then you have to start taking these words out and unpacking their meaning. I remember... Uh, about 20 years ago when I was working on my master's degree down here at the University of St. Thomas, there was another Dallas Seminary graduate, pastor, and firmly convinced uh, 
of the Free Grace Gospel. We agreed very much on many things. Who was also in the program with me. And we used to have enjoyable discussions with the Jesuit fathers and the Dominican fathers down there over the gospel. And it would take hours of like almost like legal wrangling over the meaning of every single word because what they mean by faith isn't what we mean by faith. What they mean by grace isn't what we mean by grace. And what they mean by Christ's substitutionary death may not be what we mean by that substitution. And you have to unpack this because people can say the right words but not mean the right thing. And that makes it a little difficult sometimes when we're witnessing people who have grown up in a false religious environment where their thinking has been front-loaded with distorted definitions and concepts and understanding. So that kind of makes witnessing fun in uh, some cases, if, especially if we enjoy that. But a lot of people are just so, they're uncomfortable witnessing to begin with because they don't do it very much. And they're afraid they're going to make, make a mistake, which is silly because we all make mistakes. That's why we're so thankful it's God, the Holy Spirit, who superintends it, the whole event. And he's the one who makes the gospel clear and is working uh, upon their, their mind to help them understand it. So we're thankful for that. But we have to make these things as clear as we can in our communication. But the focal point, as, as I said, is on that substitutionary uh, death of Christ. Now... The question I'm answering in this little series is this one. Is there a clear statement in the scripture that one must believe in not only the death of Christ, but also have that clear conscience or analyzed belief in the resurrection as well? Now, a verse that seems to suggest that is this verse in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is an extremely interesting verse, and it's used by many people to teach the gospel. But I do not believe that this is talking about the gospel at all. In fact, this is a fascinating verse in many ways, and we have to understand it. And to really properly interpret it, we have to do a lot of homework. And to begin with, I just want to remind you what we have to know in order to properly interpret the Bible. First thing is context. Context is so important. We began with this last time looking at the context of Romans, that the theme in Romans is the righteousness of God and explaining the righteousness of God in its relationship to creatures and that because God is righteous, those who are, those of his creatures that are unrighteous are under, under wrath. Romans chapter 1. And that all are unrighteous. There is none that hasn't sinned. That's Romans chapter Three, quoting from the Old Testament. But God has provided a gift of righteousness through imputation, and that comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So we looked at the context of Romans itself, and then we saw that in Romans 3, 4, and 5, the focus is on justification, that is, how to have the kind of righteousness God requires so that we can have eternal life. And I'm going to use that word justification to refer to that entry point into our new spiritual life. It happens at the same time simultaneously with regeneration and when we are become adopted into God's royal family and have eternal life. 
And beginning in Romans 6, we saw that in 6, 7, and 8, the focus shifts from justification to how does the justified person live, or what we call experiential sanctification, or just the spiritual life or spiritual growth. And at the end of Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 38 and 39, uh, Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, and lists various things, and says nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point he's making is God's promised it. It's secure. You can't lose your salvation. But someone might say, well, God made promises to Israel. What about them? It looks like God has forgotten those promises, broken those promises, set them aside for this new thing called the church. And what about them? So in Romans 9 to 11, which is the immediate context of Romans 10, Paul is focusing on vindicating God's righteousness in his dealings with Israel. And he deals with them as corporate Israel. This is so important to understand. It's not as individuals, but as corporate Israel. In corporate Israel, God did not, get this point, God did not say or set aside individual Jews that they could not be justified. God brings the nation as a corporate entity under discipline in line with the Old Testament promises that if they rejected him and lived in apostasy, he would take them through five cycles of discipline, eventually removing them from the land but that eventually he would restore them to the land. Romans 19.11 is not talking about God's dealing with individual Israelites and their salvation, for there were many individual Jews that were saved, that were justified by putting their faith alone in Christ alone. But as a nation, they were under divine discipline and would be removed from the land. So the context is corporate Israel in Romans 9-11. to Then we have to look at the biblical context. Biblical context is much broader. And the reason we have to do that is because when you look at these verses in Romans 10, 9, and 10, and if you have a Bible that either italicizes the quotes from the Old Testament or some Bibles put them in uh, uh, lowercase caps, something like that, small caps, uh, you will notice that the lead-in to Romans 10, 9 is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 30. You will also notice that the verses following verse 10 also come out of the Old Testament, and they come from passages such as uh, Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 51, as well as Joel 2.32. So there is a Old Testament context that surrounds this. There is an understanding of God's plan and purpose for Israel that, it, that, that covers and controls how we understand these two verses. And if you're not thinking about Israel as Israel, when you read these verses, you will make some serious mistakes. So we have to understand the biblical context. So we have to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. What's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 30? We have to look at Joel 2.32. These are the key citations from the Old Testament that frame Romans 10, 9, and 10. We have to also connect this to Jesus' statement in Matthew 23.39. And what Jesus says to Israel in Matthew 12.24 and 31.32 as the unforgivable sin. 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I would suggest that most of you don't understand that at all. And if you don't understand that correctly, then it really dominoes into a lot of erroneous interpretation. And so we're going to have to spend a lot of time there, and that will probably be taken up next next Sunday. And then we have to look at Romans 11.25, which is at the conclusion of this discourse on God's righteousness and its relationship to Israel. So that's going to give us the biblical context. Once we understand the context in terms of the immediate context and the overall biblical context, it will become almost obvious what this passage is talking about. It it just falls out. When you do the proper homework, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, why didn't I see that before? We have to see these things in their overall biblical uh, context. We also have to understand some key words. Key words are saved and salvation. And I will te- we will look at some things about this, but I will tell you up front that saved in Romans doesn't mean justification. It has to do with either the end result of the whole process, which we refer to sometimes as phase three or glorification, or sometimes it may refer to phase two, but also the spiritual life in light of the end result, that is being saved now, uh, in terms of being saved from the power of sin, with a view towards being saved from the presence of sin. It also has the idea of being physically delivered from, from physical harm or physical threat. Then we have the terms that are parallel here, confess and call. What does that mean, to confess Jesus as Lord and calling upon the name of the Lord, which we see in the quote from Joel 2.32 and verse 13. Is this mental or verbal? Then we have the term righteousness. Is this imputed righteousness, which was the focus in Romans 4, or is this experiential righteousness, which is the outgrowth of the chapter on sanctification? Very important terminology. And then finally, we'll just briefly review the theological use of resurrection. So that's what we're going to do this morning and next week. So this morning, I want to look a little bit at the overview of the context of Romans 9 to 11. Because the question here is, if God promised these things to Israel, and it seems that he's not going to fulfill those promises now because he's working with the Gentiles, how can we be so sure God's going to fulfill his promises to us? And so Paul has to address that in this section. And what he is going to do is to vindicate God's righteousness in light of Israel's rejection of the righteousness of God, which comes by faith. That's what he's been talking about back in terms of justification, that that, uh, we receive the righteousness of God by faith. But Israel, as a corporate nation, rejected that. When did they reject that? Well, the key point, the key time when they rejected that, when Jesus' ministry shifts, is in Matthew chapter 12 when he cast out a demon and the Pharisees said, oh, he's doing that by the power of Beelzebul. He's not God. That was called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to go back and understand what that means. That was a Jewish issue because the nation rejects the gift of the Messiah. 
And so they opt corporately, not every individual, but corporately in terms of the leadership, for a righteousness that comes from the law and not from faith. And that was what Jesus was really dealing with in the, in the Sermon on the Mount because the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to contrast his interpretation of the Mosaic Law with the Pharisees' interpretation of the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees said you had to just do all these things superficially and you would get to heaven. And Jesus is saying unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of God. And everybody's scratching their head saying, there's nobody more righteous than the Pharisees. These are the most moral people in the world. I mean, they're going to temple four or five times a day. They're praying seven times a day. They've memorized the Torah. They, they do everything externally. How, if they can't do it, nobody can do it. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's the point. Man can't do it on his own. We can only get that righteousness as a gift from God. So in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to vindicate God's righteousness in light of Israel's rejection of the righteousness of God by means of faith. So why does God reject Israel? Well, it's only a temporary rejection, but the question is, if God rejected Israel, then how can we say that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Romans 8, 38, and 39? So this ultimately goes to eternal security. Paul takes this long discussion of God's faith to demonstrate God will be faithful to Israel in, in terms of his promises just to reinforce the doctrine of eternal security that we can completely trust the promise of God and he never goes back on his promises. Now, in the first 29 verses here of Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about God's rejection of Israel and that it should not be considered inconsistent with his promise or God's justice. And a key verse for this is in 9, 4, and 5, who says, These are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. Not that it was, but it, to whom it is. It's a present tense concept there. They have the adoption, the glory, the covenants. They're still theirs. The giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who's overall and eternally blessed. And then he talks about promise again in verse 8 and promise again in verse 9 so that we see that the point here is showing that God has not forgotten his promise even though, as he will demonstrate in Romans 11, God has temporarily set aside Israel from the place of blessing in order to expand the blessing to the Gentiles. And he's going to use that illustration of the olive tree and the grafting in of the wild olive branches. So God's uh, rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with his justice, his righteousness, or uh, uh, because Israel, and in fact, because Israel has rejected God's righteousness by faith alone. The point he's going to make from 9.30 down through 10.13, which is the immediate context surrounding our verse, is that Israel itself is to blame for its rejection by God, or being set aside by God, because Israel first rejected God's gift of righteousness through faith for a righteousness through or from the source of works. And that's the point that he makes in those first four verses. 
especially in verse 3. But they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Following this section we're looking at, the two verses of 9 and 10, the next section from 10, 14 to 21, Paul will make the point that Israel's unbelief is not excused by a lack of opportunity. They have had more than enough of a witness. It's not lack of opportunity or any other thing. It is due to their own volition. Then in chapter 11, which is the great chapter that will deal with uh, the future of Israel, Paul is going to say in verses uh, 1 through 10 that Israel's rejection is neither final nor complete. Israel's rejection is neither final nor complete. And then in verses uh, 11 to 24, he emphasizes the fact that Israel's rejection is not final. And when he concludes that section, we have this wrap-up in verses 26 and 27. Crucial verses. Paul says, in conclusion, and so, he uses a Greek word there that means in this manner that I am about to describe. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. doesn't mean God loved the world so much. It means God loved the world in this manner that he sent his son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so... Here in Romans 11.26, Paul says, And so in this manner that I'm about to tell you, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, when is this going to take place? When is God going to bring them to this salvation We have to find out what kind of salvation this is, but when is he going to bring them to this salvation? It is when the Deliverer comes out of Zion. This is prophetic. This is when the Messiah comes at the end of the tribulation period to finally bring Israel corporately to a point of redemption. So the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, when did Christ pay the penalty for Israel's sins? We've studied this many times. He did it at the cross. This isn't talking about the payment for sin. This is talking about the future removal of the corporate guilt of Israel. They went out under a curse when they rejected the Messiah at the first advent. And in 70 AD, that fifth cycle of discipline went into effect, and they are under that curse. That's what we'll see Matthew 12 is talking about in terms of the unforgivable sin. It's not unforgivable in the sense that Christ didn't pay for it, in the sense of not being, not being paid for by Christ on the cross. It is unforgivable in a time period. And we'll see that when Jesus said, and in this age, what age was he in? He was in the last ages of the age of Israel, or the age to come. What age is that? That's the church age. Well, we still have the tribulation, the millennium after that. 
He said, in this age and in the age to come, they won't be forgiven in time. But they are forgiven when he establishes this covenant and takes away their sin. That occurs when the corporate curse is removed from Israel when Jesus returns at the second coming. So, what's he saying here? In this manner, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this word for turning away is a word which implies a removal of something and a causing a change in behavior. There's a change that occurs in Israel as a result of what happens when Jesus returns because we'll see that that's when he establishes the new covenant. He puts the law in their heart. That's not when they are justified. It is when God finally brings into effect all of those covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David when there will be a Davidic king on the throne, and to Jeremiah in terms of the new covenant. I will turn away ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness is the word asabea, which refers to a lack of reverence to God, which is a fuzzy concept. It means a lack of obedience to God, a lack of submitting to his authority, a lack of following him. It's the result of rejecting God and his plan for righteousness. So he's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob and for this covenant with them when I uh, take away take away their sins. And when he takes away their sins, that means to completely remove it. That is that temporal guilt. The word there for taking away means to detach something, to remove it, to cut it off, to cause a certain state or condition to cease. That's the idea here, the state of their being under that fifth cycle of discipline curse. That word, ephiro, is the same word we looked at on Thursday night in our study of Hebrews. It's used there to refer to taking away sins, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the point that is being made by Paul, the end of Romans 9 to 11, is that what history is driving to is that God ultimately will fulfill that promise to Israel. So you can't say that God went back on his word. Israel is secure, Israel corporately is secure in the promise of God. And God will fulfill those promises. They still belong to Israel. Those promises, they don't belong to the church. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church isn't the new Israel. Israel will eventually, as a, as a corporate entity, as a redeemed entity, be returned to the focal point of God's plan, and that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. We will look at this next week, of course, but we will also see it on Tuesday night because at this particular point it's interesting how things that we've studied in Hebrews on Thursday night, things that we're studying in Revelation on Tuesday night, all coalesce. I just love it when God's plan comes together like that. So, we look now at the more immediate context in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Begins, for Moses writes about the righteousness 
which is of the law. See, he uses a preposition there, ek, which means out from the source of the law. Now, Moses talks about that, and he says, the one who does these things shall live by them. This is a quote from... um, this is a quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Now, let me ask you a question. Were Jews in the Old Testament saved by keeping the law? No. We've studied that many times. If you look at the nation corporately, not individually, corporately, when was the nation redeemed? When were they purchased from slavery? It happened at the Exodus. At the Exodus, they are brought out of slavery. That's the typology there. They are baptized into the cloud and into Moses. And when they cross the Red Sea, they are in new life. That is a pattern that is repeated again and again in Scripture. It's used in Romans chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, other places. That is the picture of the corporate deliverance of the nation from slavery in Egypt. So they are a redeemed people at that point, according to uh, Exodus, and they have been adopted as God's son, a nation of of royal priests. But then he gives them the law. See, the law wasn't the basis for becoming redeemed as a nation or becoming God's chosen people. The law was to tell God's people how they are to live. See, the law wasn't related to becoming God's people, or as we might say, becoming justified, the law is related to how a now-redeemed people are supposed to live. So the law wasn't the way to acquire righteousness. It was the way to live now that you are God's people. That's the focal point of the Mosaic law. So when Paul is quoting this, he's saying the man who does those things shall live by them. That's what, what... Moses was saying, that's what God said in the law, is if you obey the law, you will live, and I will bless you abundantly. But if you disobey, then there are going to be certain consequences, certain judgments that will come upon the nation. And the nation is used as a whole, as a picture, as an analogy of what happens in the church age to each individual believer. Romans 10.5 is an echo of what Paul wrote earlier in Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, see, the law wasn't designed to give life, but now that you have it as a nation, how you are to live as a, as a nation redeemed by God. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been from the source of the law. Same terminology. We see a similar verse in in terminology in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the source of the law. That's what he tried when he was a Pharisee before he was saved. But that which is through faith in Christ. See, our righteousness isn't that, that, that we're saved for or justified on the basis of is not a righteousness that is the result of what we do. It is the righteousness of Christ's character which is credited to our account when we trust in him so that we receive his righteousness by means of faith, by trusting in him. So when that is credited to our account, 
after we have trusted in him, God sees Christ's righteousness and declares us justified individually. Now, Leviticus 18.5, Moses wrote there, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It is for the individual after they had been saved. The nation would live. The nation would also not go out under discipline. Now, Romans 10.6, Paul continues to say, The righteousness of faith speaks this way. The righteousness that comes from faith. This is the correct way to think according to divine viewpoint, is what Paul is saying. The righteousness of faith doesn't say, I need to follow the law. It speaks a certain way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead, or, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Now, the reason I put those three verses together is they are all citations from Deuteronomy chapter 30, at least roughly so. They are not exact quotations. But Paul is taking those, these certain statements in Deuteronomy 30, and he is applying them. He loosely paraphrases them in order to make the application to the current situation. Now, what I've done in this slide is to put Romans 10, 6 through 8 on the left and a comparison with Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14 on the right. And as you'll see, only the sections that I underlined are sections that Paul has brought over and is directly quoting in 10, 6, 7, and 8. So we have a... uh, a clause from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us. And then we have another clause from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, but the word is very near you, in your mouth, and in your heart that you may do it. Uh, Paul does use phraseology in Romans 10, 7, like who will descend into the abyss. Uh, That is not found in the original. He's picking it up and he is just utilizing it in order to make uh, in order to make his particular uh, his particular point now as we close this morning I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30 Deuteronomy chapter 30 and we'll wrap up this is the first of those verses I said we had to look at in order to really understand what's happening in Romans 10 in Roman in, in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, 28, there is a rehearsal of the judgments God will bring on Israel. It's comparable to the fifth cycle, five cycles of disciplines in Leviticus chapter 26. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's going to be a promise that ultimately, even though they will disobey God and be removed from the land, the focus of Deuteronomy 30 is that ultimately there will be a restoration of the nation to the land. God will fulfill those promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is a promise here that not only will God remove them to the land, from the land, but that ultimately he will bring them back. And so the focal point when he comes to Deuteronomy 30, 11, down through 14, is to focus on the fact that they have had God's will clearly explained to them. They know what the issues are. They have 
heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. They have been given the law. And he says in verse 11, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. In other words, you don't have an excuse to say that, that, well, we don't really know what God requires and we don't really have his word. Uh, Moses is saying you can't use that excuse. You can't say, well, God's will is up in heaven. He says, look, it's not in heaven. You've been given it. You can't, it's not in heaven, so you can't say, well, who's going to go to heaven and get it for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? God gave it to you on Mount Sinai. You have it in front of you. Verse 13, he says, you can't say it's beyond the sea, that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. You have it. It's been given to you. You can't say it's somewhere else and we have to go search for it. That's his conclusion in verse 14 where he says, but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. You've been given it. You talk about it. It is right there. The issue is going to be your volition. The issue is going to be what you decide to do with it. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 16, or verse 15, rather. See, I have set before you today life and good or death and evil. It's your choice. And you and I have the same choice. Are we going to choose life, which is, comes from obeying God's word and applying it, or are we going to choose death, which is doing it our own way, carnal death, temporal death, not, I'm not talking about ultimate, uh, the ultimate second death here, which is the lake of fire, but it's talking about being the walking dead believers who are living like they're still uh, spiritually dead, spiritual zombies. It sounds like a good doctrine to develop. It's what a lot of Christians are. They're the walking dead. They don't know how to get in fellowship or stay in fellowship. And they don't care because they think, well, I really can't understand God's word. It's just so distant from me. And that's what Paul says to, to is saying to the Jews in relation to the application of Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10, 6 through 8. He says, the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is, who's going to go and get Jesus for us? And don't say, who will descend into the abyss like he died and he's still in the grave. But what does it say? It's the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Jesus has come. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And the, he has given a sufficient witness of who he is and what he did for us. And so man does not have the excuse to say, well, somehow I just don't understand. It's too distant. It's too hard. It's too difficult. God is saying it's been made very clear. The issue is your volition. But the life that he is talking about in context here is not eternal life in terms of being justified. It is the life that comes to a justified believer who is continuing to walk in the light, abide in Christ, walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, and studying and applying God's word in his life. That's the analogy with the Old Testament. It's not talking about moving from spiritual death to spiritual life, but moving from carnal death to spirituality, to walking by means of the Holy Spirit. The overall context of Deuteronomy chapter 30 
has to do with the ultimate restoration of Israel to the land. When God is going to move them from a state of discipline, fifth cycle of discipline, to a renewed life in the millennial kingdom. Are they already justified at that point? Yes, they are. It is because they are comprised of a host of individually justified believers that corporately they will call on the name of the Lord. Matthew, that's Matthew 23, the last verse. I won't come again until they say, uh, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the focal point at the end of the tribulation. And then the Lord will return, physically deliver Israel from her enemies at the end of the tribulation and establish his new covenant and they will go into the millennial kingdom. That's the context. That's the opening context. If the opening context has to do with physical deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, what do you think the verses that follow Romans 9.10 are going to focus on? The same thing. So if the focal point here by the introductory Old Testament passages has to do with the physical deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation, and the quotes following Romans 9.10 have to do with the physical uh, deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation, the removal of the curse, and their establishment of them as a kingdom. What do you think Romans 10, 9, and 10 is going to focus on? Individual justification of the believer? How do you get that? It's nowhere in the context. And we'll see how all of that comes together next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you have revealed your word so clearly to us and that in this age we have God the Holy Spirit who makes it clear to us. Justification is not from our own works. Justification is because we trust in Christ. And at that point, through faith, you impute to us Christ's perfect righteousness and we're declared just. At that point, we're simultaneously regenerated and we receive eternal life that can never be taken from us. You don't back up on your promises. You don't reverse yourself. You didn't reverse yourself with Israel. There will be a future fulfillment for Israel. They will be saved, delivered at the end of the tribulation period, and you will fulfill all of your promises. Because of that, we know you are faithful, and that we can count on you to faithfully fulfill every promise you have made to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we studied this morning, that we might be encouraged in our trust in you, that you are ever faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.